Welcome to Think Again, a podcast by Macquarie Asset Management, providing financial advisors with a fresh perspective and innovative insights designed to keep you and your clients a step ahead. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Denise St. Ivany, and joining me today is Brad Klapmeyer, Senior Portfolio Manager at Macquarie Asset Management on the Ivy Large Cap Growth Team, which is based in Kansas City. Brad oversees the investment decisions for the team's strategies. We are happy to have him back on the show. Brad, welcome. Hi, Denise. I'm happy to be here. So advisors know about evaluating large companies and are probably familiar with the Magnificent Seven, uh, which are the biggest stocks in the S&P 500 and household names we hear about most often. But I wanted to bring you on the show to discuss another point of view that advisors might not be thinking about with their portfolios or fund allocations. So I'm thinking a good starting place would be, what should investors know about the Magnificent Seven? It's a term that I'm already getting well worn out on. <laughs> I can be honest with you. It's um, and, and maybe just set the stage just so everybody's clear. The Magnificent Seven consists of Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, um, which I guess goes by Google. I still know it as Google. Uh, Meta platforms, which I still know as Facebook, NVIDIA, Amazon, Apple, and Tesla. Those are what consist of the Magnificent Seven. And what's interesting is if you look at our benchmark, which is the Russell 1000 growth, this is just one I'm familiar with, but you can really think this would be very similar to the S&P 500. In 2010, these seven names accounted for a little over 10% of the benchmark weight. And as you can imagine that the and now that they've been termed the magnificent seven that has grown um you know by 2018 they were 27 percent by 2020 they were 37 percent and then by 2023 you know on average they've been about 43 percent of the benchmarks for approaching 50 percent of the benchmark is made up uh, by these names but it's it's important to know that these have been uh, cycles like this in the past and been different iterations through history where the market is aggregated into um, a handful of what are perceived to be, uh, whether this turns out to be per, uh, sustainable or not, the most successful, the most durable uh, growth companies back in the late 1960s and into the 1970s. There was obviously the Nifty 50 Many of these names will not be <laughs> names that people remember, but IBM is still one, Eastman Kodak, Xerox, Coca-Cola, which, um, you know, it's obviously still around Polaroid, uh, several uh, pharmaceutical companies like Merck and uh, Shearing and Plow, separate companies, Shearing and Plow combined and ultimately got bought by Merck, I know because I covered the industry for a while. And again, during the um, late 1990s into the early 2000s, when, when I started my career, we had the Four Horsemen, which was Microsoft, Intel, Cisco Systems, and Dell Computers. But also on that list during the internet.com bubble were a bunch of telecom names that were, were aggregating up to be very significant cap, like Lucent, um, America Online, SBC Communications. These are all names that we thought, uh, Yahoo was on that list, believe it or not. Um, all names that we thought were going to be the exceptional uh, um, companies of, of the, the next decade. I think it is extremely important to answer your question. It's um, it is important to take this into account when you're assessing a, a portfolio or a fund. We take it into account when we assess the risk in our portfolio. And I think likewise, uh, investors should uh, take account 
um, uh, of this concentration when they're assessing managers um, that they're looking at. So Brad, listening to you comment about those concentrations in the index, it uh, makes me think, you know, how does that affect how you're constructing a portfolio and evaluating which stocks to go in? And how should an investor think about um, evaluating managers? Yeah, I think that's that's an important question. And we can go several layers deeper here on the, this very point. I guess just starting at a high level in terms of how we think about uh, as a uh, uh, say fund manager, how we do things different day to day um, have as those names come into the fundle of the, the ideas we have to select from. I guess first and foremost, we we try not to do much different from how we think about quality. And what I mean by that, just because just simply because these names are larger positions in the benchmark and have aggregated up to be very significant. Our job is still the same. We want to find the best businesses that exist in the world. And that's our starting place. So we try not to get pulled into this idea that Microsoft is 12% of the benchmark. Therefore, it has to be a good company. We want to be open-minded and our diligence and our assessment. And we can go definitely deeper into that. But that's in first and foremost. We're always just looking for the highest quality businesses regardless of their benchmark weight, I think investors should make that decision independently of that. Um, and, and I think ultimately over a multi-year horizon, that will lead into a, a better place. It does impact how we think about risk assessment and deeper levels of portfolio construction. We can, we can talk through there if we need to. In terms of how a, uh, a investor is looking at assessing fund managers, I think this is a very important uh, point. Um, it, it's definitely become more complex. And I think I think people will notice this when you pull up large cap growth managers, what you'll see on the list is some very similar names. You'll see Microsoft, you'll see Apple, you'll see Google or Alphabet, you'll see Amazon, you'll probably more likely than not start to see NVIDIA because of the powerful returns that we've had this year. You'll see very uh, you'll look at look at the portfolios and you'll say these portfolios all look the same or they they tend to rhyme but those largest positions um in the portfolio don't tell the complete story you have to go a layer deeper when you're looking at those top 10 holdings for instance and really start to think about how those weights are driving excess returns or what we call alpha and so looking beyond the active weights, a couple of things you can dig deeper into, and I can give some examples of particularly in our portfolio where an active weight is different than the, than the, uh, um, you know, the overall position weight and what we mean by that. But you have to go a little bit deeper and look at that active weight, how that manager is positioned versus the benchmark. And then we can go another layer deeper into talking about tracking error and what that means for positioning. Yeah, I'd love to get to that. But maybe before we do that, could you give me an example? Uh, do you have a, a particular example that you have in either your fund or have had in the fund? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely speak to our positioning because I think it will be helpful in illustrating some of these dynamics that I think investors um, should definitely spend some time on when they're assessing, uh, assessing their managers. And I can just throw out a couple. So if if you look at our uh overall top weightings in our portfolio, you'll probably notice that Apple is our second biggest weight um, at something around 7%. Uh, 
But if you look at it relative to the benchmark, which our benchmark is the Russell 1000 growth, what you'll find is that we are uh, actually near 5% underweight. <laughs> and that's called the active bet, taking your position size versus the benchmark. And so you get a much different picture, right? So an investor may look at the portfolio and say, oh, I get to own a piece of Apple. And that's true. But if you're looking at it versus trying to benchmark versus a specific index, you're actually underweight that position versus the benchmark. Another example of this distinction, uh, an example of this would be Tesla, which uh, does not appear in our top 10 holdings from an overall weight. But because it's such, because we don't own Tesla, but if you look at our active weight, because it's such a big position in the benchmark, it shows up on our top 10 active weights, meaning we have over a 300 basis point or over a 3% uh, underweight position. Now, we have reasons to be underweight that I'm happy to talk about on another podcast. We go deeper into names. Um, but it, it's, it, it's very clear that if you just looked at that um, top 10 list, it wouldn't draw the full picture that an investor needs to see as, as we that you would get with the with just looking at the top 10 positions. You need to go a layer deeper and look at the active weights. So talk about going deeper. Um, you did mention risk and reward. Um, can you talk about, you know, given what you've been discussing, and then how does that play into your evaluation of risk? So this this is where it gets a little thicker. So there's the active weight component that is really the starting place of figuring out differentiation versus a benchmark. That's where the transparency starts to come in. So if you're buying a manager to outperform a Russell 1000 growth benchmark or a growth benchmark, for example, and they own 12% of Microsoft, that in and of itself is not telling you much because why is that? Because Microsoft is actually 12% of the benchmark. So you're not getting anything truly differentiated. That's why you want to look at that active weight. Maybe they own 50, 15%, which would give you more information. Maybe they own 10%, which would give you more information that they're underweight. If you go another layer deeper, um, beyond looking at active weights, we believe looking at active risk is a even stronger view of, um, of sort of the bets that a manager is making, gives you more insight to what they're doing. So another name for active risk, just to make this even more complicated, would be tracking error but you have to be careful. So it's very good at indicating how out of sync a portfolio can be versus the benchmark. So it can show you how, uh, how different it can be. So if the tracking error is very low, then in theory that, that portfolio is closer to the benchmark. If the tracking error or the active risk is higher, it can potentially say that the return stream can be um, very different versus the benchmark. And again, you have to be very careful that this doesn't always have to be a positive thing. So, you know, the perception can be that the manager is taking on more tracking here, that's that's good. But I think you have to ask yourself, and this is where we get into how we execute on the portfolio construction and why it's so important, is you have to ask yourself, how is that manager generating that tracking error? How are they generating that active risk? Um, if they are 13% underweight Microsoft, am I comfortable with that? And that will show up in very significant uh, active risk. Or are they generating significant tracking or active risk because there's 13% overweight Peloton? Are you comfortable with the 13% overweight Peloton? Yeah, that may make them very different than the return stream of the benchmark. 
But if they're generating that return stream because they're generating a lot of active risk from Peloton, that may not be something you're comfortable with. Likewise, they may be generating significant tracking or, or differentiation versus the benchmark um, return stream due to macroeconomic variables. They view a recovery, so they're leveraging cyclicals, or they believe there's volatility coming, so they're generating a lot of uh, uh, tracking error from being way overweight stability names. So there's lots of ways to get there, but don't feel like the conclusion is more tracking error, more active risk is better. Um, what we believe is, number one, look at the active weights uh, versus the top weights. That provides more insight into positioning. And then look at tracking error, not only looking at the active risk they're taking versus the benchmark. So again, higher number means more active risk versus the benchmark, lower tracking error means closer. But look at how they're aggregating that up. Are there off, uh, are there bets that you're uncomfortable with? Our view is we can actually minimize tracking error. We don't have to look dramatically different than the benchmark as long as we're very concentrated on those bets they take. I know that was a lot, but hopefully that summary Active weights versus top weights, tracking error, um, look at the details of it because that will give you even more uh, insight into what your manager is doing in terms of taking risk and how much they're taking. That is a great point, Brad. I think in the past, people would look at top holdings and that would be a big part of their evaluation. But it really can't be that simple anymore. You have to go deeper and understand the overall risk of the portfolio and how the portfolio is constructed. The complexity just requires a little more effort and it's easy things to find. And obviously, I think the, the, you know, the details available. And of course, we've tried to make it as transparent as possible and provide that detail. But it has changed. Traditionally, when you would pull up the top 10 holdings, that also uh, represented the active holdings. And I think what we're saying is that that's no longer the case given the concentration of the benchmark. So just go a layer deeper. So I'd urge everyone in their manager assessment process to look um, not only at the active top 10 weights, but also set aside the view of total risk and start looking at active risk. Um, it does. It is more nuanced and um, hopefully we provide a little understanding to it. And I think what's come out of this being at the high level and not going a layer deeper is that we've incorrectly genericized or commoditized growth managers. Like there's there's perceived no distinction of growth managers anymore because of this concentration that all active managers are quote unquote exposed to the same bets. And I think what I hopefully communicated it, um, probably not effectively, but effectively as I could uh, with this type of material is that um, if you go a layer deeper, I think you'll see some really divergent views that managers have in the growth universe. You know, uh, uh, zero exposure to Tesla doesn't show up on the active top 10 weights, but shows up or on the top total top 10 weights, but shows up on the active weights. A, um, a, a position in Apple that looks like a healthy position on the top 10 holdings ultimately either shows up as a significant underweight or overweight on the active top 10. So you get a much different picture when you go that layer deeper. And again, going into that tracking error, how significant is that tracking error? How is that tracking error generated? Is it exposures that you want want to see in, in the client's portfolio or in your portfolio? Those are very important questions. But again, I think the end result is it's it's been 
bad news to really be able to differentiate across growth managers. And maybe that's partly the proliferation of passive and ETF that we perceive all growth managers to be the same. And that's far from the truth. And I think in the next you know, three, four, five, 10 years, those distinctions between growth managers will be even more important to assessing uh, future success. Well, I think you've made some excellent points there, and all of these points can resonate with investors as they look and, and evaluate portfolios. Appreciate you being here today, Brad. Yeah, it's been my pleasure as always. Look forward to the next time. Thank you, Brad. And don't forget to join us next time on Think Again, where we will discuss another topic for investors to consider. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for more information on topics from this episode. And be sure to subscribe to Think Again wherever you get your podcasts. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Investing involves risk including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objective will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation, and needs and seek advice. No representation or warrant expressed or implied is made as to the accuracy of completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Macquarie Asset Management is a full-service asset manager offering a diverse range of products across public and private markets, including fixed income, equities, multi-asset solutions, private credit, infrastructure, renewables, natural assets, real estate, and asset finance. The public investment business is a part of Macquarie Asset Management and includes investment products and advisory services distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors, LP, a registered broker slash dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment Advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of MIMBT. Macquarie Group refers to Macquarie Group Limited and its subsidiaries and affiliates worldwide. Delaware Funds by Macquarie refers to certain investment solutions that Macquarie Asset Management Public Investments distributes, offers, refers, or advises. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, any Macquarie Group entity noted in this podcast is not an authorized deposit-taking institution for the purposes of the Banking Act 1959. The obligations of these other Macquarie Group entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank. Macquarie Bank does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these Macquarie Group entities. In addition, if this podcast relates to an investment, the investor is subject to investment risk, including possible delays in repayment and loss of income and principal invested, and none of the Macquarie Bank or any other Macquarie Group entity guarantees any particular rate of return on or the performance of the investment, nor do they guarantee 
guarantee repayment of capital in respect of the investment.